Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute's web event on marijuana and federalism. My name is Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow at the Cato Institute and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Now, of course, in this time of crisis, there is a lot of understandable discussion about the current pandemic and coronavirus, but of course there are other issues going on and the issue of marijuana and its relationship between the federal and state governments is one that uh, is ongoing. It also, of course, has to do with federalism, which uh, relates to some of the current pandemic and public health. And today we'll be discussing with the uh, editor and one of the contributors of this book, Marijuana Federalism, which has been published by the Brookings Institution, Uncle Sam and Mary Jane. Uh, joining me is the editor-in-chief, Jonathan Adler. Uh, he is the Johann Vorheim Memorial Professor of Law at the Case Western Uni Reserve University School of Law, and John Hudak, Deputy Director of the Center for Effective Public Man Management and a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Also commenting is Ilya Shapiro, Director of the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Welcome, gentlemen. Getting us started, uh, I thought we'd go to the editor of the book, Jonathan Adler, uh, and talk about sort of what's happened, what we've seen happening in marijuana and federalism since the big moment when my home state and Washington uh, legalized marijuana in 2012, and even before. Sure. Uh, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm sorry we can't uh, do this in person, um, but uh, glad to be able to be here and talk about uh, marijuana, marijuana federalism, uh, both the book and the underlying issues that led to uh, us wanting to do, to do this book. Uh, basically, over the last few decades, we've seen uh, you know, dramatic changes in the legal landscape relating to marijuana. And this has occurred within the context of our federal system. And as, as much as any issue, it's illustrated uh, both some of the, the benefits of a decentralized federalist system, but also some of the problems that can arise when state governments and the federal government don't uh, cooperate and don't work together. Um, you know, 25 years ago, marijuana was illegal throughout the United States. Uh, and beginning in the 1990s, though, uh, some states initially began to legalize marijuana for medicinal purposes, um, uh, California being one of, among the first to, to do that. Uh, and then, as Trevor noted, in 2012, uh, Colorado and Washington State became the first states to withdraw fully uh, from the federal war against marijuana and legalized it not merely for medicinal purposes, but also for recreational purposes. Uh, since then, uh, another nine states and the District of Columbia have followed Colorado and Washington State's lead in decriminalizing, or sorry, legalizing marijuana for uh, recreational use. You have another uh, 20-some states that allow fairly broad medicinal use of marijuana. You've had states reform their laws with regard to uh, certain uh, cannabis derivative products, CBD oils and the like. You've had some additional states uh, reduce penalties for low-level marijuana possession. And this has all occurred against the backdrop of maintaining federal prohibition of marijuana. And so we're seeing two things going on simultaneously. On the one hand, we're seeing a great experiment uh, in different states adopting different policies, uh, and that's generating a lot of information about the pros and cons of marijuana legalization. Um, and we have a chapter in the book that looks at the preliminary data, and it's obviously still preliminary in terms of what the consequences of marijuana legalization are. Does it affect uh, various health, health outcomes? Does it affect 
um, uh, you know, problems of, of kids in school. What does it do to youth use and youth, youth access? What does it do to alcohol use and so on? What does it do to crime? Um, and uh, so we're seeing this great experiment that's teaching us a lot, not merely about whether or not re uh, regulating or prohibiting marijuana is a good or bad idea, but also we're beginning to learn something about uh, how sm relatively small differences in state laws can actually make a difference in terms of the practical on the ground consequences. I think overall, um, thus far, the effects have been less than a lot of people predicted. Um, uh, legalizing marijuana has not uh, produced nirvana. Uh, it has not produced uh, a chaos either, um, but it has uh, certainly uh, had had some effects. Um, but because marijuana remains illegal under federal law, uh, these experiments are somewhat distorted. Um, that uh, the federal government's continuing prohibition of marijuana uh, use, cultivation, possession, distribution uh, has effects on what occurs at the state level uh, and uh, creates uh, some problems. Uh, you know, we all know, you know, this being the Cato Institute, we don't have to remind folks that our federal government is one of limited and enumerated powers, uh, but the Supreme Court has held that the Commerce Clause, supplemented by the Necessary and Proper Clause, can reach even the local intrastate uh, use and po possession of marijuana. Uh, but despite that holding, the reality is the federal government doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the will to try and be the, the cop on the street. Uh, and so we have the situation where a lot of activities occurring at the state level that's technically illegal under federal law, uh, but it's uh, for most people, they don't actually have to fear uh, criminal enforcement. Um, and some of the things that the book goes into, which we can talk about in some more detail, is that the federal prohibition doesn't affect whether or not an individual is worried about having a low level, a small amount of marijuana in their pocket, uh, but it does affect the ability of a business to obtain financial services and banking services. It does affect uh, what a business can deduct on their uh, tax returns. It affects um, the way lawyers approach providing legal services to marijuana businesses. It, it can expose businesses to civil RICO exposure. So the fact that we have this differential treatment um, between state and federal law matters, uh, and even folks like Attorney General Bill Barr, who are not in favor of marijuana legalization, recognize that the status quo isn't stable, and that uh, if we're going to allow marijuana federalism, uh, we do ultimately need, need to make some changes in federal law. And, and as an initial matter, I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, before we, we go on to John, I wanted to uh, point out that we'll be taking questions online uh, on all the platforms that we're streaming. And the hashtag for this event is Cato SCOTUS, Cato S-C-O-T-U-S. Uh, and with that, we'll go to John Hudak from Brookings. Uh, thanks, Trevor. Thanks, Jonathan, for editing this volume and, and obviously contributing some great content to it. Uh, it was my pleasure to work on it, and, and thank you uh, to all the viewers out there uh, watching us from home uh, and being able and willing to participate today. Uh, a lot of what Jonathan said about these changes in cannabis policy over the past couple of decades has happened in large part because of rapid changes in public opinion. Cannabis policy, cannabis as a topic in itself, is pretty fascinating in terms of just how rapid public opinion has changed, how, how much it's diversified at first being largely in favor of medical cannabis, and then eventually becoming nationwide in favor of adult use cannabis. 
And that has really motivated uh, the policy changes that we've seen. So we see that change in public opinion happening uh, in polling. We're also seeing it happening through ballot initiatives that are passing first in states like Colorado and Washington, uh, but then states on the West Coast, the East Coast, as far north as um, Alaska. And we're seeing changes also happening in public opinion that's motivating legislatures to act. Vermont being the first to pass uh, some form of a cannabis legalization bill a couple of years ago, and then last year, Illinois becoming the first state to pass a full-scale commercialized uh, adult-use cannabis bill uh, through its legislature, a campaign promise that newly elected Governor Pritzker had made. Um, those changes are meaningful. Those changes are pushing public policy in a very clear direction. Uh, but the interesting thing about uh, public opinion around cannabis is that while support for that issue is extraordinarily high, uh, the issue's salience is not. So if you ask someone, do you support cannabis legalization? Uh, they'll Most chances are they're going to say yes. Uh, if you ask them, uh, is cannabis legalization in your top 20 issues? Or what are the top 20 most important issues to you? Most people are not going to put cannabis legalization in that top 20. And so that creates these interesting dynamics where people are really supportive of an issue that they really don't care much about. Uh, but therein lies an interesting rub. And that is that even though the issue isn't salient, uh, as Jonathan had said, it touches on so many different areas of public policy that I think people uh, who don't look at this all the time think of cannabis as a pretty simplistic, yes, no, uh, buy it or arrest for it uh, kind of issue. But it touches on agriculture, the environment, energy, uh, real estate, tax, banking, a whole variety of issues, uh, even beyond that list, uh, that when people start to think about it, they realize that cannabis policy touches their lives sometimes in very indirect ways uh, and ends up having a role in much broader public policy debates. You know, and we're seeing that right now uh, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is uh, a real lack of preparedness at the state level um, for what to do with this nascent industry in the case of a state level, or in this case, national level crisis. You're seeing governors respond, and governors are responding in two ways. Uh, the first, I think, is sort of flying by the seat of their pants. They weren't prepared for this, um, particularly in the context of, of cannabis policy, uh, and they're trying to get it right on the fly. Uh, but the second is that governors are responding to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic in the context of cannabis policy in a way that reflects public opinion. Uh, most governors are keeping cannabis dispensaries open in legal states. Uh, the one exception um, is Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, who is probably one of the few governors in uh, America who is more popular than cannabis legalization. Uh, and they are recognizing the details of uh, access, of uh, people's view that this is medicine and the need for that, particularly in a period of anxiety and other health crises. But it's also doing something else that this book touches on. And I think it's why this book is so valuable in addition to it showing how many different aspects of policy it touches on. And that is, uh, this pandemic is telling people that they need to think about federalism seeing a president and governors battle it out over who has authority is an interesting dynamic that we see every day in cannabis policy. 
most Americans, uh, maybe they know a little bit about federalism, but federalism isn't something they think about every day. But cannabis is uh, something rooted deeply in federalism, and it's something I think more Americans are going to be paying attention to. Thank you, John. Uh, we'll move it over to Ilya uh, with some remarks before we uh, kind of get the Q&A going. Well, uh, I'd like to first thank uh, John Adler for putting this together and Brookings uh, for publishing the book. Uh, John and Jonathan didn't talk that much about the book, but it really is a remarkable contribution to this issue. Uh, now, it's called Marijuana Federalism. The subtitle is quite clever, Uncle Sam and Mary Jane, right? Get it? Uh, well, with respect to marijuana federalism, I'm in it for the federalism. Um, I'm, I, I like to think of myself as an objective commentator in this area because I've never uh, partaken uh, in, in the particular weed in, in any of its uh, forms. Uh, ironically, Randy Barnett, professor at Georgetown, uh, who argued Raich versus Gonzalez, the important case where the Supreme Court 15 years ago ruled that uh, Congress, the federal government, can indeed regulate uh, even local uh, state complying uh, growth and consumption of cannabis, he also uh, has not consumed. But, uh, but anyway, um, I think it's a fascinating topic. It's a fascinating book because not, you know, John Hudak was talking about the different areas of law and policy uh, that uh, cannabis touches on. Well, this book as well, this is not just kind of hoity-toity constitutional theory. It talks about banking and finance with regard to uh, marijuana businesses. It talks about uh, legal advice and bar regulation. It talks about uh, polling that, that, that John Hudak's uh, chapter on public policy. It talks about the social science uh, results that we're seeing, whether in crime or uh, uh, suicide rates, uh, health care, uh, all these different uh, uh, aspects. Uh, what has the Supreme Court said? A recent decision uh, striking down a federal law that prevented states from legalizing sports gambling, Murphy versus NCAA. What does that opinion have to do uh, with uh, this regulatory tension? Uh, so it's really um, uh, a great and, and accessible, fairly uh, thin book that uh, uh, builds on and, and updates and makes more accessible uh, a very good symposium that Case Western's Law Review uh, put together that John Adler was also uh, instrumental in, in in 2015. So if you want a kind of a, a, a deeper dive and a more kind of technical legalistic dive into that, I, I, I recommend that to you. It's now five years old, so we have more results, more legalization and, and what have you. But anyway, uh, uh, very good book, very good summary of all these uh, uh, different areas. Uh, the fundamental thing uh, about this area of policy is how can we even be talking about marijuana legalization? Because after all, there's the supremacy clause in the Constitution, which says that when a state and federal law conflict, uh, the federal law trumps, uh, the federal law governs, it's, it's supreme. That's the way our Constitution works. Well, um, there's two caveats to that. First of all, there has to be proper federal authority or jurisdiction over the, the law in question. Here, the Supreme Court, I think, in my view, incorrectly decided Rach versus Gonzalez. For now, we're stuck with federal regulation of even uh, local uh, intrastate, non-commercial uh, aspects of uh, marijuana. Uh, but regardless, the second part is that even in those areas where Congress is properly legislating and regulating, it cannot force states to enforce federal law. In the technical term, it cannot commandeer state officials, whether those be legislators to criminalize uh, marijuana or uh, law enforcement to uh, enforce federal law. And because of the practical challenges 
of um, uh, enforcing the Federal Controlled Substances Act. That is that uh, you know there there are only 4,000 DEA agents worldwide. Uh, there, you know, most law enforcement in this country is done uh, by state and local officers. Uh, 99% of marijuana uh, arrests or cases are generated by state and local officers. It's for practical purposes, the federal government um, can't pursue its law uh, in the same way uh, everywhere if local officials uh, are not cooperating. And that makes it kind of uh, the situation where we have Schrodinger's weed that's both legal uh, and illegal uh, at the same time. And you know, uh, what we're seeing is that uh, cannabis uh, legalization or experimentation in public policy has survived and thrived in the shadow of the, um, the federal ban. And we're seeing that this is just one uh, example of a phenomenon, this tension, uh, federalism tension, whether cooperation or, or conflict, uh, or in any, in any event, coexistence that we're seeing uh, in different areas of policy from immigration with sanctuary cities and other aspects, uh, gun control, Obamacare, uh, gambling, and coronavirus, uh, the COVID-19 uh, tension that everyone's uh, speaking about. So a uh, fascinating area of law, um, uh, good book, good good primer on these different areas. And uh, you can really teach, a, I don't know if, uh, if any schools yet uh, have an entire course on marijuana law, but you can get at a lot of different aspects of, um, uh, of legal domains uh, through this prism. Thank you, Ilya. Now, before uh, I'm going to shoot it over for the questions, uh, again, the hashtag is Cato Scotus uh, for questions that'll be taking. I'd like to take the moderator's privilege and uh, and ask this question. I'll go to, to Jonathan, and then Ilya might have something to say. Maybe John. Uh, how does this compare to alcohol prohibition before the before the federal prohibition of alcohol in the 18th Amendment? So. Uh, we had to pass a constitutional amendment to prohibit alcohol, but we prohibit drugs by statute, uh, which seems kind of strange. And as you said, we have the Schrodinger situation where marijuana is simultaneously legal and illegal in the states where it's been legalized, which seems like someone might have screwed up somewhere uh, if, if that's the case. Uh, so how, how, does this, how does this relate to that? And then before alcohol, alcohol prohibition, how did they deal with different states that had prohibition versus different states that didn't have prohibition. Well, so there's there's a lot there and and yeah, I mean there, there's a lot there and, and and you know without going through the whole history of the the evolution uh, of constitutional doctrine, I mean the short answer is is that prior to prohibition uh, the commerce clause was understood as the interstate commerce clause. Uh, it grants Congress the power to regulate commerce among the several states and so the idea that the federal government could uh, regulate, let alone prohibit, uh, the possession, uh, the intrastate possession and sale of products was something that was, um, you know, beyond the imagination of federal legislators. If you look uh, in the progressive era at early federal laws governing um, uh, food and drugs, like the the, the beginnings of, of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and the like, the idea was is that until things were actually part of truly interstate commerce. The federal government had nothing uh, to do with that. Now, after prohibition, um, what the federal government did is it made it a federal crime for uh, an individual to uh, import, export, or or prepare to, to import or export uh, or possess alcohol in violation of applicable state law. So, what what happened after prohibition was the federal government's v approach to alcohol was 
we are essentially a backstop. We are preventing uh, people from taking advantage of a state where alcohol is legal as a way, as kind of a staging ground to uh, 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 sell and distribute alcohol where it's illegal. And recognizing the federal government has a comparative advantage, has some resources that states do not have to deal with things like interstate trafficking. Uh, and so to this day, um, you know, it is a violation of federal law to violate state laws about distribution and importing and exporting uh, of alcohol. And that allows states to adopt different rules. Now, you know, alcohol is legal in every state, but different states have different rules about, um, about distribution, who can sell and so on. Uh, and the federal government is basically in a supporting role, which is in line with the resource constraints that Ilya just talked about. In the sense, the federal government can play a useful role in helping deal with the interstate trafficking aspect of things. There's really not much the federal government can do in terms of the person walking down the street with marijuana in their pocket or uh, the corner uh, marijuana dispensary. Um, that said, I just think it's worth remembering, though, that that this you know, Schrodinger's weed a dynamic is such that um, as a practical matter, if I went to Colorado and I went to a marijuana dispensary and I purchased some marijuana for myself, the likelihood of anything happening to me under federal law is close to zero. But if the owner of that um, uh, of that dispensary wants banking services, they have to deal with the fact that banks have to certify that they're not providing financial services for illegal activities. Uh, uh, when an individual has a medical marijuana card, that still disqualifies them from purchasing a gun under federal law. If that marijuana dispensary uh, creates problems for its neighbors, um, it's subject to civil RICO liability because the federal law violations are RICO predicate offenses. That dispensary can't um, expense uh, you know, the costs of their growing uh, equipment uh, even though um, uh, the neighboring business that's growing hydroponic tomatoes can expense uh, that equipment. So, I mean, the, the, the fact that we don't have federal enforcement doesn't mean that we have this weird landscape where, you know, I, I can obtain marijuana without consequence in a state where it's legal, but doing so can affect things like my ability to own a gun. Uh, and, and that's a, a really, you know, odd and I would argue unstable uh, status quo. One other point on that, uh, you, you asked about uh, you know the, the prohibition example. One thing we can actually learn is that uh, there, as in many areas, federal action, congressional or in that case a constitutional amendment, is a lagging indicator. So a lot of states had already uh, prohibited alcohol in their states uh, or put in various restrictions in various kinds. So we had uh, the situation that we do now with marijuana, where uh, the same product is uh, legal in some states and illegal in others. And it's not like that system was necessarily breaking down, but it came to the point where this uh, the, the origin of the phrase Baptist and boot bootlegger coalition came together, different interests, uh, moral and economic, to, uh, uh, to, to outlaw uh, nationwide. But there are examples, both in terms of the financial sector and criminal enforcement that we can look at in that pre-prohibition period uh, about how um, uh, you know, how this can work without uh, federal um, uh, overregulation. 
Thank you. I'm going to go to our question feed now. We're getting a lot of questions coming in. Again, remember it's Cato uh, Scotus is the hashtag. We're taking questions on on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm going to start. There's two questions. One from anonymous, uh, and another one from David White on Twitter, which at both asked, "To what extent do you expect increasing budgetary pressure due to the COVID-19 pandemic pandemic uh, to accelerate legalization in some states? Do you see this being the trying to find money via selling? So maybe I'll kick this over. I don't know if, if John Hudak would have any comment on this or whoever wants to weigh in. Uh, sure. So in a lot of states, uh, governors and uh, advocates are really starting to steer away from the revenue stream as a basis or as a reason for legalization, in large part because in the examples we've, we have already in the states that have legalized already, yes, states are making significant sums of tax revenue off of uh, cannabis sales, but relative to a state budget, these are very small amounts of money. And so the fear, particularly among elected officials and advocates, is that if we promise uh, cannabis legalization to be the path to end all of our budget woes, uh, the public is ultimately going to be very disappointed when they see what those receipts look like. And so while, yes, state and local budgets are going to be under tremendous strain, uh, in the coming year to two years because of COVID-19 and particularly because of the interruption in economic activity, uh, I don't really see uh, governors in particular and others uh, focusing on this as a, a big solution. Now, it can be packaged as part of a broader solution to say, listen, we need to jumpstart the economy. We need to jumpstart tax revenue in this state. Uh, let's include cannabis in part of that conversation. But I think if advocates and uh, state legislators and others try to overplay their hand and make this seem like it will be the cure-all, uh, it's really it would be a, a political a political mistake and a strategic error on their behalf. And, and if thank I you. Just jump in on oh, that. I mean, can I jump in on that, Trevor? Yeah, I, I, I yes. think John's point about um, politicians being concerned about overpromising is an important one. I mean, the the chapter in the book um, that looks at um, the empirical social science data shows that both advocates of legalization and opponents of legalization both exaggerated their uh, what the effects would be. They both made claims about the effects that were gr greater than what we've actually seen. So the negative consequences on things like school discipline and, and crime and so on, much less than opponents uh, predicted, but the benefits that people uh, suggested were less than, than people predicted. If you look at the state of Washington, their state budget is somewhere in the neighborhood of $40 billion a year, I believe. Um, they're bringing in right now uh, I think just under $400 million of, of tax revenue from marijuana uh, a year. So, you know, that $400 million, that's, that's decent amount of money. But if you're, if you're, if it's 1% of your state budget, you know, that's, that's not um, uh, some uh, uh, massive cure to other budgetary shortfalls. It's useful money to have, but it's not, you know, it, it, it's not, a, it's not a game changer. Ilya, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, somewhat related to what we were just saying, but uh, picking up on a, on a few things, uh, uh, John Hudak's uh, chapter in this book uh, goes into public opinion polling, and it really is quite remarkable, the, the shift 
uh, in public opinion just in, in very recent times. Uh, I, I think it's the greatest change in American public opinion uh, uh, in such a short amount of time uh, on any issue in, in our history except uh, same-sex marriage. I think that's the only one where there's been a more rapid shift. Uh, and you can see that in every state, in every demographic, the, the slope is, is, is kind of the same. And so my, I wonder with, with John, um, uh, what, uh, you know, given that Congress is a lagging indicator on, on a lot of things and certainly on this, when can we expect some sort of uh, federal reform of, of, of federal law, given that, uh, you know, the dynamic that you displayed, it's a, uh, you know, the opinion is one way, but it's, but it's low salience. So how do you think that's going to work? Is there a magical tipping point where, you know, once there's enough states that have legalized recreationally or once all the states have done it medically, where there's going to be a certain shift, you know, as also congressmen get younger and younger and there's a generational shift there. Yeah, I don't buy into the tipping point theory. I think if there was a tipping point with this, we would have already seen Congress legalize medical cannabis. Uh, I think we're by any measure at that, beyond that tipping point. And so I don't think that that's really uh, what's it, what's at play. Uh, in terms of trying to uh, figure out a time when this is going to happen. I, I got out of the prediction business in November of 2016, so I'm, I'm not going to say that. But what I will say is that there is a lot of movement we're seeing in Congress right now. Uh, uh, last year, Congress passed uh, the Safe Banking Act, which was the first uh, pro-cannabis reform standalone piece of legislation passed by a chamber of Congress in American history. Uh, that's a significant step forward. We're seeing committee hearings uh, on a variety of bills, uh, both in the House and in the Senate, um, that is real progress. And that's the type of progress we see on any legislative issue that is moving uh, fairly rapidly in the direction of uh, reform. I think the last point you made, Ilya, is an important one, and that is the changing demographics within Congress. A state legalizing, particularly for adult use, uh, we see has a pretty significant effect on the rhetoric uh, that members of Congress and particularly senators have with regard uh, to the issue. But I do think as, uh, you know, uh, uh, baby boomers, uh, particularly people in the silent generation exit Congress, um, typically because they die, uh, and millennials uh, begin to increase their numbers in Congress, uh, we know that what's happening in the electorate is also going to be happening in the Congress, and it's not going to take that long. But ultimately, what you need, uh, the right recipe for real reform in uh, the United States Congress right now, uh, rests first at the feet of the Senate Majority Leader. You need a different Senate Majority Leader for something that's uh, cannabis-related and not related to hemp. Uh, to pass. And I think once that happens, there's going to be a gate opening uh, that's going to allow a little bit more change. Thank you. Um, we have a couple of questions coming in uh, that deal with banking. Uh, one from uh, Victor Fox on Facebook, uh, which discusses, which he asked about the chances of the Safe Banking Act passing, which of course now with the pandemic is probably very little, uh, but maybe uh, Jonathan or, or one of you want to comment on what's happening in the banking world and, and what are some of the fixes uh, that have been proposed and they're likely going to pass it. Sure. So, um, I mean, 
you know, I think one of the things that there's just to also to add on to John's uh, last answer is that, you know, there are particular constituencies that don't really care about marijuana, but do care about being able to go about their business uh, without uh, uh, interference. And, uh, right, so gun owners learning that um, uh, a medical marijuana card uh, is going to ding them from purchasing a gun. Um, you know, that's that's something that that suddenly may change people's view of things. Uh, the banking industry, uh, the banking industry wants to be able to provide financial services uh, to legal businesses, and having to worry about businesses being legal in some jurisdictions and not others uh, is a, is a headache for them. And um, uh, as we learned during the Obama administration, uh, there's really nothing that the executive branch can do about that. So the Obama administration did issue a memo trying to uh, uh, alleviate the concerns that the banking industry had, and they couldn't really do anything about the underlying uh, legal requirements and what banks are required to certify. And, and Julie Hill of the University of Alabama has a chapter uh, in the book that, that focuses on this. I think that, that the drive for reform in Congress probably comes from the concern that, that the financial sector has, because this, this current status quo is really unstable for them and, and, and complicates business for them. And so I think then the question becomes, do you get standalone banking legislation like the Safe Banking Act, or you do, do you get something like the legislation that's uh, proposed by Senator Cory Gardner and Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, a, a combination you wouldn't normally uh, expect that tries to actually follow the, the, alcohol, the end of alcohol prohibition model and basically says, look, we're not, it's not going to be illegal for purposes of federal law if what you are doing is fully compliant with applicable state law. You do that, that solves the banking problem. It also solves the other problems. Uh, but I think, in terms, back to the question, I do think that um, the, the, the federal prohibition pinching on particular uh, interest groups that have independent concerns like the financial sector it, is the sort of thing that's, that's likely to drive reform at the federal level because you know the financial sector cares about this and it, and it matters to them. John? Uh, I think that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic really put the brakes on all kinds of legislation uh, pending before Congress that is obviously not directly related to this. And so in that sense, it's, it's really difficult for uh, seeing the Safe Banking Act moving forward before the end of the Congress, particularly given uh, that it's an election year, particularly given the social distancing uh, requirements that are really keeping Congress away from doing business, uh, except that which is absolutely necessary. Uh, but I will say one of the things that, that I've been doing a little bit of writing about uh, that I'm hoping to put some stuff out on soon is how is the pandemic going to affect the nature of the cannabis industry. Uh, I think, you know, you see a lot of businesses still open in most states, but I think the uh, economic effects of this are going to lead to business closures, uh, business consolidation. And I think when we come out on the other end, the cannabis industry is going to look uh, quite a bit different. And I think the negative economic effects that might happen to the industry as a result of this um, could end up applying pressure to Congress, the next Congress, uh, to take up the banking bill as a means of relief. Uh, you're seeing right now uh, uh, problems with the cannabis industry trying to get access to the, the CARE, uh, CARES Act, 
in, in terms of the economic relief for small businesses, small business loans for employees, et cetera. Um, that's challenging. And while their inclusion in future pieces of legislation related to the economic recovery is, is in question right now, I think that a broader conversation about the vulnerability of this industry and ways that it could be helped uh, to stabilize through uh, economic challenges, whether they are sort of historic global challenges like this, or maybe future challenges that are very unique to the industry itself, I think might boost the Safe Banking Act as, it, as part of that conversation moving forward. Thank you. Uh, we have a couple questions uh, from some anonymous people uh, asking both uh, who 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 might be better in terms of pres- uh, incoming administration for marijuana federalism, President Trump or uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and similar to that, is it possible, uh, Mitch Nemeth on Twitter asks whether or not it's any reason to believe that a president could legalize cannabis on his or her first day without Congress's approval? And I guess more broadly, what things can presidents do about this? Uh, we can start with uh, Jonathan, I think. Yeah, um, I'll start. And I know John might want to chime in and talk a little bit about the, the descheduling process. Um, the reality is, is that there's very little that a president can do unilaterally um, in terms of the actual legal status of marijuana that quickly. You know, there is, the president could certainly encourage um, a reconsideration of marijuana being scheduled uh, as a controlled substance, and 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 John may want to talk about that. But we saw in the Obama administration um, the limits of what the executive branch could do. We had the the Ogden and Cole memoranda, which instructed U.S. attorneys uh, not to pursue uh, marijuana prosecutions for uh, cases that did not involve interstate trafficking and did not involve um, distribution to children and things like that. And you know that was essentially. The, the way most U.S. attorneys' offices were already acting, it's the way most U.S. attorneys are, are acting still since the, the rescinding those those memoranda. Now, the reality is is that um, the federal government has never placed a high priority on prosecuting low-level possession and distribution of marijuana, uh, and it doesn't have the resources to do it. Um, and the real effects of marijuana prohibition on on legal businesses. Uh, are are the consequences that flow from uh, the underlying prohibition. So John just mentioned you know, the ability to, to obtain uh, relief under the CARES Act. We've already talked about the way the prohibition interacts with other laws. And those are things the executive branch can't uh, do anything about unilaterally. Um, the, the, federal, the, the executive branch can't just suddenly wave a magic wand and make banking law change or make um, uh, gun laws change or or what have you. Those sorts of things re- require legislation. The one possible exception is descheduling, but in my own view, is that's something that takes time and, and would be difficult. And like, as I said, I don't know if John wanted, wants to say more about the descheduling route. Uh, sure. Yeah, uh, the 2020 Democratic primary had some promises about cannabis legalization that were far-fetched to, to be generous. Um, the president uh, does not have the power to uh, deschedule or legalize cannabis by executive order at any time. Per, I mean, on day one or, or you know, the last day of the presidency, um, he is forbidden by law from doing that because the Controlled Substances Act um, sets out a very clear administrative process by which cannabis would be descheduled. One thing that a president could do on day one 
is appoint an attorney general uh, and an FDA chief and an HHS secretary uh, and a DEA head who are all committed to uh, legalizing uh, or descheduling cannabis. And then that administrative process would play out. It takes time. Uh, and you know, if a president is truly committed to this, he can um, affect that action over time. There are other things that a president can do through enforcement discretion to really put pressure on agencies uh, to treat cannabis businesses uh, in different ways. We haven't seen uh, presidents do that in much of an effective way, President Obama or uh, President Trump, but there are ways outside of Cole Memo style enforcement discretion uh, that, that things can be done to provide some relief. Uh, but ultimately, this, this sits with Congress. Uh, working out the details of this is going to sit with Congress. Uh, and the, the first part of the question was, uh, who do you think of the two presidential candidates uh, would be better on, uh, on cannabis policy? And to be honest, I don't think either of them will on their own. Uh, I've been hearing for three and a half years that Donald Trump has a secret plan to legalize cannabis. I, I haven't seen anything happen on that. I don't think he's going to do it in the next eight months, uh, but, but who knows? He's an unpredictable guy. Uh, I don't think Joe Biden is a particular fan of the idea of cannabis legalization, but I think with, with Vice President Biden, what you're going to see, you've seen his rhetoric change a little bit. You can call it a flip-flop, you can call it evolution, uh, you can call it disingenuous. There's a lot of things I think you can call it. Uh, but what I think it reflects is enormous pressure from the Democratic Party for him to move on this. And I think those conversations about social equity and criminal justice and racial justice mm -hmm. and economic opportunity and uh, business freedoms and, and things like that are going to have their impact. And I think if uh, Joe Biden wants to be a more progressive president than uh, the history of his record, you're going to see those voices uh, like Bernie Sanders, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, like Kamala Harris, uh, like many other mainstream Democrats and, and, and progressives, uh, really begin to have his ear and say, listen, even if you are not here, this is where the party is and this is where America is. Now, it's not to say that Biden is going to move on that, but I think there are going to be many more voices in a Biden White House to push him in that direction than there have been so far uh, in a Trump White House. Uh, thank you, John. I've seen a couple questions uh, relating to taxpayers. Uh, one of them coming from Facebook is from Smart Approaches to Marijuana, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with Kevin Sabet's group, who I've debated a couple times. Uh, but a lot of people have asked, should taxpayers, uh, many of whom do not vote in favor of marijuana legalization, be forced to subsidize loans or grants to federally illegal businesses? Uh, the answer to that is yes, because the same as guns, and that's a democracy works, but we'll see. I mean, if anyone has any comments on that, if it makes any, if there's any difference. Uh, for SBA loans to marijuana businesses? Well, I mean, I'll start. I mean, I think the question is whether or not we think it's really the place of the federal government to decide uh, whether or not certain products are legal or illegal uh, under applicable state law. And the reality is, is that in all kinds of other contexts, we allow states to have different rules about what sorts of things are legal or illegal. Um, I remember when I used to live in the, the D.C. area, um, I could have a radar detector in my car in, in, I forget whether it was Maryland or Virginia, one of them allowed them, one of them did not. Uh, when I moved here to Ohio, uh, high alcohol content beers were not yet legal 
uh, in the state. And uh, for purposes of federal law, uh, we didn't, th there was no difference between businesses that were uh, 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 selling these one set of products versus another, so long as this, they were legal under applicable state law. That's how we treat most of these sorts of questions. And my own view is ideally that's how we would be treating marijuana uh, as well. And if we treated marijuana that way, it would be like guns. It would be like anything else where uh, state laws vary. Uh, but the question of availability to things like SBA loans and the like would be a function of uh, operating in conformity, in conformity uh, with the law of the applicable jurisdiction. So I'll add, I'll add quickly. I, I think that uh, while I think the question is framed poorly, um, I think there's a serious point within that question to be made. The question isn't whether businesses should be bailed out because some taxpayers disagree with it. As Trevor said, we have a democracy. There's a lot of types of businesses I don't like. I hope they get bailed out because that's how our system works. And some people are teetotalers and don't like alcohol. And some people are afraid of flying and the airline industry is getting um, a check handed to them. And so the idea that simply disagreeing with a policy should mean that um, money shouldn't flow to help that those legal businesses um, is, is just anti-democratic. Um, but the question is, should businesses that the federal government have deemed illegal um, be helped by federal money? And I think that's that's a critical question. If you start to have business, if you start to have states uh, say that a variety of other businesses are legal um, beyond cannabis, um, cocaine grows, or you know, coca grows, or cocaine production, or um, fentanyl production, uh, or, or things like that. Uh, at what point does that stop, and at what point do you draw the line? Uh, I think that while that's probably frustrating to a lot of people in the cannabis industry, it just reflects um, how difficult our current system is. Uh, that if a majority of Americans support legal cannabis and uh, the federal government is letting states have these industries and employ tens of thousands of people, uh, but then an economic crisis hits that system uh, that they can't be bailed out, you know, there, there's both sides to that conversation that that really is unresolved um, or resolved in a very certain uh, specific direction because of congressional action and currently congressional inaction. And so the frustrations are going to abound. And I think at the end of the day, cannabis businesses probably are not going to get bailed out um, because members of Congress are looking to spend political capital on a variety of things. And the cannabis industry is not going to be at the top of the list for a lot of people. Thank you. Um, on this, uh, there's a couple of questions here about uh, schedule the fact that marijuana is Schedule One with no medical value. So Richard Rose on Facebook says, "How is this still possibly true?" So finding the 46 states have found some form of medical value. Uh, and so Schedule 1 says no medical value. How is that still constitutional? And how can we leverage that? Uh, I don't know if uh, maybe John Hudak would be the best person to take that one. You know, I, I think what we've seen in the past uh, couple of weeks is actually a really interesting example of the, the challenge here. Um, I don't think public opinion should dictate uh, what uh, is medicine and is not medicine or what medical treatment is and what it's not. Um, I get very frustrated watching uh, the 
presidential briefings uh, from the White House where the president is telling people to use medicines that the medical community has not said will work or the medical community has not vetted. Um, I think that's very dangerous to do. Um, now, I have people in my life um, who I know uh, I see get medical relief, um, get some sort of symptomatic relief from cannabis, but that's not how we do business in the United States. We have a rigorous FDA process um, to say what is medicine and what is not medicine. And so uh, I understand that that concern. Now, to then go into states and say, um, we have to get rid of all of this. We have to get rid of the systems that you have. It's hard to put the genie back in the bottle, but I think one of the worst things we have right now um, around cannabis are companies making wild and unproven claims about cannabis. And the COVID-19 pandemic is a perfect example. You have companies, you have websites that are saying the use of cannabis is great for uh, the treatment of COVID-19. And that is, I mean, that is horrible behavior, absolutely reprehensible behavior. Uh, and when those companies and those systems are not getting regulated properly, uh, lives are at stake. And to me, that's an enormous problem uh, with the system that we have currently. It, it reminds me if uh, anyone remembers from law school, the carbolic smoke ball case where they claim that you could heal yourself of flu or prevent flu by inhaling the smoke ball. Uh, Ilya, you have a follow up on this? Yeah, this is a good place to insert the, uh, the two exceptions to the federal complete ban. Uh, one is a research study. Uh, the FDA uh, was stingy in the last decade. It's opened it up. I, I think there's now about 350 research projects, or at least there, there were at some point in the last decade. Um, presumably some of them are finding some medical benefit, uh, so it's a bit of a legal fiction that it's still uh, Schedule One. Uh, but the other exception is, is kind of kind of a, a tidbit for, uh, for your cocktail parties, I, I suppose, anyone uh, watching this, uh, is the Federal Compassionate Use Program, kind of like the state medical marijuana that was started under President Carter and quickly ended. So it's still grandfathered in. There are currently, I believe, seven patients remaining. And uh, since there's a federal program, that means there's a federal grow site. And there is a federal grow site of marijuana contracted out to the University of Mississippi. Now, I don't know whether that's because the senators from Mississippi in the late 70s were very powerful or very weak. But anyway, uh, there you go. And Trevor, if I could just jump in on this for a second, something something we need to remember from a uh, administrative law standpoint is that Congress for good or ill has delegated uh, authority to consider the evidence on med medical uses of marijuana to a federal agency uh, under the various administrative law doctrines we have in place. Uh, that means that that agency gets to decide uh, how to weigh the various uh, uh, competing claims, how to evaluate the various studies that have been done. And that gets, uh, in the context of judicial review, that gets an extreme amount of deference. Um, in some respects, we even call it a, a super deference when it comes to a federal agency's evaluation of the relevant scientific studies. So the fact that states disagree with the federal government may matter politically. It may matter in terms of how people feel about the subject and, and may affect the, the political debate. But from a legal standpoint, it's it's not particularly relevant. If uh, the federal agency in question uh, is able to offer a reasoned explanation 
Uh, that doesn't mean an, an explanation we agree with, but an explanation that has reasons about why they uh, weigh the scientific evidence in a particular way or or uh, reach certain conclusions. Um, given that th that agency has been delegated that power by Congress, that gov that goes. Now we could we could talk about how there's a might be a better way of handling these sorts of questions, more federalism, uh, less deference to administrative agencies, what have you. But under current law, that's the way it works. Yeah, and uh, I'd like to add, I've, I've written about this before, where uh, the, the FDA path is an interesting one that you could pursue, but it's very unlikely, I would say nearly impossible, that the FDA will ever approve full plant marijuana as a as a having medical uses. It's about as likely as them approving chicken soup. Like the, the FDA prefers single substance, like, you know, pills in a single substance and marijuana has so many substances in it that they were unlikely to ever approve that. And on this point, uh, we have a question uh, from Twitter from Republicans Against Marijuana Prohibition asking about this declassifying or reclassifying cannabis uh, and why it gets all the attention. Uh, there has been a method in the Controlled Substances Act to apply and obtain for an exception to federal Schedule One. Uh, why is that routinely overlooked? Uh, maybe uh, John Hudak has a thought on that. Well, I think the conversation right now um, has focused on scheduling because the that's where the political conversation is right now. Um, oddly, uh, to me at least, an administrative process ended up being the right type of uh, avenue by which people could understand a policy issue. And uh, the advocacy community, the, the pro-cannabis advocacy community, um, was very effective um, in the early 2010s, uh, it talking about rescheduling as a path toward policy change uh, and, and explaining that to um, the public in, in a specific way. And now as the uh, focus around issues around racial justice and criminal justice um, have elevated in the policy conversation, uh, the discussions about descheduling um, have, have really taken root. And uh, maybe that sounds more technical uh, and less offensive than legalization, uh, but ultimately what uh, the advocacy community has done, as I said, is found a messaging campaign uh, that has really connected with the American public uh, in a very valuable way. And it's also connected with members of Congress um, who, uh, who, who look at this issue uh, and see it as more of a government action uh, rather than a public action or a, or a, a public opinion action, uh, that maybe they would be more comfortable with uh, moving forward. And so the elevation of descheduling, particularly over the past, I would say, two to three years in particular, um, has, has been one uh, that has been masterful by uh, those uh, supporting it, and particularly those supporting criminal justice reform and racial justice issues. Uh, this is an important one. I'm not sure who might have a comment on this, but it's a good question from uh, Dale Gieringer. I think it's how you pronounce it. I think from Facebook. Doesn't the single convention treaty on narcotics, a UN treaty uh, from 61, I think originally, remain a serious obstacle to descheduling? The treaty allows medical use, but not outright legalization. Won't the DOJ and State Department move to block descheduling on these grounds? I don't know who, who has a comment on that. I, I can start. I mean, they might. I mean, it, 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 it's um, uh, 
certainly the Justice Department could feel uh, uh, constrained by that obligation. Of course, Congress would not be. So if Congress uh, were to uh, change uh, the underlying legal treatment of marijuana, um, that the, the treaty obligations would not stand in the way of that. Um, I understand, though, in terms of the treaty obligation itself, is that insofar as it, it allows for medical use, um, that would constrain perhaps what the outcomes of a descheduling process are, but wouldn't necessarily prohibit it entirely. Um, and quickly, I'll add to that. Um, ultimately, a descheduling uh, decision, if it's made administratively, rests with the attorney general. Uh, and so I can't imagine an attorney general issuing uh, the okay for rulemaking to begin around descheduling, and then also at the same time say, I'm vetoing my own decision because it's violating uh, international treaties. Uh, you know, I think from a technical perspective, yes, um, it would be an explicit violation of the single convention. Uh, but look to what, uh, you know, the UN did to Uruguay. Look to what the UN did to Canada when they decided to violate the single convention. Absolutely nothing. Uh, and so I think the US can rest assured that if it decides to just ignore uh, the basis of the single convention that A, the UN's not going to do anything about it. Other countries are not going to sanction us as a result. If they didn't sanction Uruguay, they're not going to sanction the United States. And ultimately, an attorney general is not going to contradict himself or herself. I'm going to take the uh, the last sort of moderator's problem to sort of, we have uh, three minutes to go. So each of you can weigh in on on moving out of this. What is What is the what is you think right now? Of course, the pandemic has changed so many things, but even in a, in a regular time, what are the best steps to take if we want to sort of rectify these problems and the contradictions between federal and state law? Um, so I'll start with uh, Jonathan, and then we can go John and then Ilya. Well, I mean, I, I I would say the first thing you want to do is is get up to speed about why federalism is is key to understanding this legal landscape, and so you know that's a reason to go out and and buy the book. You can uh, there's a Kindle version. You can order it through Amazon or straight through Bookings. Um, but uh, I, I that that aside, I, I do think that if if one wants to solve the 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 Schrodinger's weed problem, as as Ilya so aptly put it, you have to. Uh, reconcile state and federal law. And I think that ultimately requires the federal government focusing on the true, the, the distinct federal interests in marijuana, which relate to things like trafficking uh, and don't relate to a local distribution and use. And the more people can understand that, that we've done this before, we've done this with alcohol uh, and it worked out. And by worked out, I don't mean that we have alcohol laws that I like. I mean, it worked out in that we have a federal state system uh, that allows states to determine what occurs locally. And the federal government focuses on the distinct federal interests related to things like interstate commerce. Uh, and, and that works. And allowing that for marijuana as, through legislative action, I think would, would solve that as well. John? So I think what needs to happen is for Congress to have a very detailed, uh, holistic conversation about what cannabis legalization is going to look like. Um, you know, I think one of the problems, and I mentioned it before in the 2020 Democratic primary, was this conversation around cannabis that just seemed so easy and so simplistic and so uh, just ready to go on day one. 
and and Congress isn't there yet. Uh, the the uh, in, incoming administration is not going to be there yet, as I mentioned, and and you know Jonathan's book is a, is a great example of this. This is a complex area of policy that is going to have tremendous uh, consequences for other areas of policy. And simply flipping the switch on day one is going to leave not dozens, but hundreds of policy questions unanswered. And so if Congress and uh, either the current president or the next president is going to want to move forward with legalization, uh, they're going to have to think very deeply about what that system looks like and how the shared powers between the states and the federal government are going to map out. Ilya? If we're, if we're looking at incremental federal change, then the Safe Banking Act certainly addresses the most immediate need, uh, you know, how you, these businesses exist, and it's dangerous and problematic in various ways uh, not to access most of the financial system. Uh, and then there's something like the States Act, where the federal government just legislates that if your state has, has legalized, and for federal purpose, it has legalized uh, as well. Uh, also allowing interstate trade, interstate commerce, uh, proper use of the Commerce Clause uh, among those states that have legalized. Right now, it's it's very hard uh, uh, to uh, to have that kind of interstate commerce. Um, but 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 generally, yeah, I, I agree with John Hudak. There there has to be some sort of global conversation rather than kind of putting your hands over your ears and 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 ignoring the fact that there is this instability in in the law and in a growing uh, sector of of business. Well, thank you, gentlemen. That's all the time we have today. Uh, thank you for attending today's event. Uh, and there were many questions that came in that I saw, some of which were very good, but maybe more about a different subject. So I apologize that I couldn't get to all of them. Uh, the video recording of this event will be available later on the webpage uh, later today. Uh, and have a good afternoon.